0: Welcome to the second episode of the Emory Digest podcast. My name is Chuma Obineme. I am a PGY-5 fellow at Emory University, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Jason Brown. Say hi to the crowd. Welcome back, gang. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. So today we have an excellent interview with a really astounding guest. and we're gonna discuss IBS, pregnancy, and all the different therapies that you should and should not use. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the second installment of the Emory Digest podcast. Today, we will be tackling IBS and pregnancy, and to do it, we'll be spending some time with Dr. Mark Pimentel, a co-author on a recent review in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Pimentel to the show. Um, He truly needs no introduction as his contribution to the world of GI and IBS has been incredibly far reaching. Um, He is the head of the Pimentel Laboratory and Executive Director of the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program, or MAST for short, at Cedar sinai His research includes, but is not limited to, irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bowel overgrowth and better understanding, understanding the microbiome. Um, his work led to the discovery of Rifaxim as a treatment for IBS and he has been published widely in numerous prom- prominent GI journals. Dr. Pimentel, thank you and welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here, thanks for having me.
1: Um, we always like to start off by um, just having the author give us a sense of your background and how you got into medicine.
2: Uh, so my, my background, I come from a small city in Canada, actually, and uh, ironically, I wanted to become a dentist because I didn't think I could get into medicine because <laughs> I'm from a small town in Canada. Uh, but I, I did aspire towards medicine. I always liked gastroenterology. I thought the digestive system is really the center of the universe for health uh and you know a heart doesn't do very much except the same thing over and over again but the digestive system now that's an awesome system
1: i love
3: it
2: and you know a worm has a digestive system and doesn't have a heart because it don't need one and uh so the digestive system is the most evolved organ in the body uh but but uh i also wanted to subcategorize into motility and i had a background in microbiology and so i merged the two and the irony of it all is that when we first described the relationship between IBS and bacterial overgrowth was in 1999 and I still have the tomato stains on my body from uh, people throwing tomatoes at me <laughs> but the word microbiome didn't come out till 2001 and and now 20 years later you all don't know that history of how, how controversial I was back then but, but things have really evolved and you know I I like to use the term or the the quotation, which I'd like to say is my own, I think it is. Science is the regression to the truth. And if I'm right, I'll be proven right. If I'm wrong, I'll be proven wrong. But science will eventually tell the truth as to what is going on. And I'll leave it at that. That's my career in a nutshell.
1: I love it. That's a beautiful notion. And um, and I'll certainly be stealing some of those GI as, as the center of the body quotes for a lot of the trainees that rotate with us. That's that's perfect. We're a cardiology-heavy program. Just like the I times. talk about
2: the anus, that's the most amazing
1: organ in the body. But The punctuation mark, as it were. Yeah. Um, well, one of the goals of this show is to highlight the author as an educator and to celebrate those efforts um, you know, contributions like you have made uh, over the years and in particular the subject of, of today's podcast is uh, so important in medical literature and to clinical practice it's no small feat we know that um, it takes an incredible amount of effort to not only write the guideline but to put your career into the position where you can even be asked or invited to do that kind of thing yeah. and so from from a, a junior faculty perspective how'd you get from being the Dr. Pimentel from just graduating fellowship to the Dr. Pimentel of the Pimentel lab and 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 doing what you're doing now
2: well there's a lot of advice I could give to young uh, clinicians especially in gastroenterology I think I think the challenge we have is 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 multiple for example NIH funding you know people said oh you got to be innovative but if you don't tow the line, you don't get NIH grants. Uh, and the problem with towing the line is you're basically doing what everybody else is doing. And if you want to be innovative, there really isn't a lot of, it's not easy to, to do innovative things. But here's what I, here's what I tell my fellows is, and, and those who are coming out of training. I say, if, if you're doing research, it's sort of like digging on a mountain. you got this mountain of things you could discover. And maybe you dig, you're, so this mountain is gastroenterology and you dig a hole here and you dig a hole there. So you did a little GERD research, a little IBS research, a little IBD research and you're digging all these little holes on the mountain. Nobody sees those holes. They're tiny with respect to the mountain. But if you keep digging a hole in the same place for 10 years, it's going to be a big damn hole and somebody's going to see it and you're going to be able to make an impact. And I think that's really the, the, the thrust of it find something that interests you keep digging keep looking and and try to look outside the box because not everything that's published is true and just Hmm. because somebody said it doesn't mean it's right and you can find things that that are contrary to the literature and if you're if you're right you make a difference to patients and patients lives so those are kinds of pieces of advice i give the fellows here
1: that's incredible and we we thank you for that Um, how about when it comes to finding mentorship or or finding those connections to work with people across the country internationally national committees or work groups um what's your recommendation for for forming those relationships
2: Oh, it's ironic because i just spoke to one of my mentees not my mentee anymore but uh dr eric sean dartmouth yesterday and he won't mind me sharing this story but he said you know because because we had a we had a mentor-mentee call yesterday, and he's the head of motility at Dartmouth. Uh, and so he doesn't need a mentor anymore. But but he sort of thanked me, and I said, and I said, I gotta thank you because I I don't I, you know the mentor-mentee relationship doesn't succeed unless two things exist. Number one, the mentor-mentee relationship is never about me; it's about the mentee and what the mentee needs to do. And number two. The mentee has to be motivated because if they're motivated, the mentor doesn't have to do anything except guide. And and you know that was Eric Shaw for me. He he wanted stuff all the time, and I kept feeding the stuff, and we worked together very collaboratively. And he just wanted it. Um, if you if you as the mentee want it, and the mentor understands that it's about you, the relationship's good. Because look, the bottom line is. You, what, what you don't want in a mentorship is a mentor that wants more papers because of you. What you want in a mentor relationship is for that mentee to have a paper that you're never on. That means that they they're flying on their own. And the sooner you get to that, the more successful I am as a mentor, because you need to fly, not me. Uh, and and uh, that's that's how I see it. And that's how I treat some of the
1: folks that come through our program. That's wonderful advice. But uh, so I guess
0: maybe I'll shift gears a little bit just because I'm curious, you know, I think COVID-19 has been such a, um, I don't know, I guess wide reaching event that's sort of changed the way we practice medicine, do research. W- what kind of changes, I guess, have you had to adapt to and I guess, you know, your laboratory work and also clinically since since COVID-19 has hit?
2: Well, um, you know, one of the things about the COVID-19 pandemic is that a number of things happened. for example clinically our patients disappeared Mm -hmm. I mean they didn't come see us yeah there were video visits but they really sort of were hiding and now that they've reemerged some of their some of them are sicker some of them are you know they they let their illness sort of languish during that time but in terms of research productivity we took a different approach I mean we wanted to now it's a chance to publish we have all Mm -hmm. this time and I think the journals saw this. They saw a huge uptick in the number of publications, not just COVID, but you know, I have you know, if I had three papers sitting on the sidelines waiting to be written, but I didn't have time. Now I had some time, or some of the folks yeah. in our lab had time. So we didn't drop a step in terms of productivity. Just the productivity was different, mm. um, and and I think that that's sort of what we saw. But you know, the patients are still there. They still need our help. They still need Us to find the new solutions and and good ideas that will help them so i you know it wasn't so bad um but covid was bad but but the productivity and research wasn't terrible
0: awesome yeah so i mean i feel like these this this review is pretty big so i i think it's now time to uh let's jump to the paper a little bit um so what i really like about this review is that one, it's it's really comprehensive, but it really takes a deep dive into the pathophysiology of not just IBS, but also pregnancy. Um, so I guess before we get into the nitty gritty of the paper, what's interesting to me is that you guys were collaborating with, uh, I guess, some folks from GYN. It looks like you, there was a, uh, a GYN physician who was also writing this paper. What was that like to collaborate with folks outside of the GI specialty?
2: Well, I think it would be remiss of us not to have an OBGYN on this because they're the ones on the front line seeing these patients. But, but also the fact that, you know, medicine's kind of funny. You know, the, the OB-GYN will see an IVF, a patient, sorry, with a person who's pregnant. They're not a patient because pregnancy is normal. Uh, so let's be clear. Uh, pregnancy is not a disease state. But they're seeing this person in their office who's pregnant. And, and uh, they're like, then the person starts talking, you know, I'm bloated, I have IBS. Oh, don't talk about that. I'm here for your pregnancy, you know. <laughs> and so there's two reasons to have the OBGYN on there is that their experience with pregnancy and the relationship with other disorders that co-occur in pregnancy or worsen in pregnancy is important, but also having the OBGYN on there so that the OBGYN, the OB-GYN world knows, hey, you know, pay attention because these people suffer a lot during pregnancy if they have IBS at the same time and and so it sort of crosses the bridge of that between those two worlds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the interesting thing too is, so I guess just to get into the pathophysiology just a, a little bit is that it it felt to me, I guess, you know, in the beginning of the paper really spends a lot of time getting into, you know, the changes that occur, you know, during pregnancy, neural hormonal changes. Um, and it seems like there were, I guess, I don't know, some interesting differences between that and I guess the standard patient who has IBS. Um, I, how do you see these two patient populations being different? Or uh, like, do you look at them I don't know, differently? You mean an IBS patient and a pregnant IBS patient? Is that... Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, those two, right. Yeah. Well, uh,
2: first of all, let's, let's even do something a little bit different. Not that I want to change the subject in your question, but let's look at... The IBS patient, the woman with IBS who doesn't want to be pregnant because she's terrified hmm. about the psychological impact or the impact on her symptoms, and she's not becoming pregnant because she's worried at how bad she's going to feel when she's distended and bloated from IBS, yeah. plus she has her, her pregnancy on top of that, and, and, and they hesitate they hesitate in family planning and they're scared and and so we walk through it with them before they even become pregnant but when they become pregnant then then it's you know you have to walk them through the physiology as you 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 sort of alluded to in your question because stuff happens in first trimester the progesterone effects makes you nauseated you're not so constipated in first trimester uh, but a lot of physiological changes on motility but but what I tell my patients before they become pregnant is I said pregnant women are superhuman. They're like the Avengers. I mean the <laughs> the amount of stuff I mean you know my wife tells me I I smelled terrible during pregnancy because the acuity of smell goes up. That's why they don't like certain foods or things or they're they have food aversions because things just sm- because you have to detect a predator from a mile away because you're pregnant you're protecting yourself and a fetus but you become superhuman to be honest and it's amazing how many times ibs patients become pregnant and their ibs is so much better during pregnancy i see this quite commonly uh it's not all the time obviously and so you know the, the, the the paper talks about what to do when that doesn't happen but you know pregnant women are superhuman there's no doubt
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess is I guess, do you find that, uh, is diagnosis, let's say for the patient who, you know, I guess didn't have explicit IBS beforehand, but I guess throughout their pregnancy developed symptoms, you know, consistent with IBS is, is diagnosis more difficult in these patients or do you, do you use different strategies to confirmed Agnes them
2: well I have to say that I can count on one hand the number of times somebody referred me and I a patient with nuance at IBS during pregnancy it's almost Mm. like unheard of so more typical is that they had IBS and now they're pregnant or they had IBS and they're talking about pregnancy and they become pregnant and we have to manage the situation Uh, yeah I mean nuance onset IBS and pregnancy there's not really a lot of data on that, uh, any data at all, and I don't see it that often. So um, but we do know food poisoning is a big trigger for for IBS and uh, and so just being mindful of food choices during pregnancy so that you don't create IBS during pregnancy, I think most women are very careful in their eating patterns and things change. They're not pounding sushi when they're pregnant, usually they're they're more careful with their food choices.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. we could just jump to, yeah, I mean, that'd be good to jump to just, um, you know, I guess a lot of times in IBS, we think a lot about diet as, as a form of therapy. Um, are there, it seems like, you know, given all the concerns with, you know, uh, getting good nutrition, uh, during pregnancy, it's, it seems like it's difficult to, um, I don't know, I guess, recommend a, a therapeutic diet for them. How, how, do you go, how do you go about talking to, to patients who have IBS or pregnant and, and altering their diet and whatnot?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, all the rage right now is the low FODMAP diet because it, there's been a fairly decent amount of literature on it that it's helpful uh, because of this relationship with the microbiome. And, and so if you're on a low FODMAP diet, you're restricting a lot of fermentable products. And so you can change the microbiome, which helps patients with IBS to reduce the bloating, reduce the the bowel pattern problems. The problem with the low FODMAP diet though, is is it's, I tell my IBS patients, if you don't eat anything, you'll never bloat, but that's not a diet. Uh, So, but if you, but the low FODMAP diet gets as close as you can get to not eating uh, fermentables, the problem is it's a little extreme and as a result nutritional deficiencies are 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 published in terms of if you've been on low FODMAP diet for more than a month or two to three months you start to get nutritional deficiencies. So that's a problem in pregnancy. So we don't really like the idea of putting a pregnant patient on a low FODMAP diet. We've had for a while what we call a low fermentation diet which is less restrictive and doesn't give you those nutritional deficiencies uh, that we're, we're aware of. And so we, we like to proceed in that direction because it doesn't restrict all vegetables like low FODMAP diet seems to. Uh, folate's really important in pregnancy, but most women are already on multivitamins and folate replacement just by the nature of uh, uh, their OBGYN prescribing this routinely for pregnant healthcare. Um, and and so you're not going to get fully deficient, you're not going to get vitamin deficient per se, but it's just micronutrient deficiencies that can happen. And, and you want to be as broad in your diet as possible during pregnancy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Are there, I guess, um, we don't have to go into, the, I guess, the whole low fermentation diet, but I guess, um, how do you start to counsel patients about, I guess, key foods that you would tell them to restrict or ones that are important for the low fermentation diet?
2: Yeah, I think one of the one of the big challenges in in food science and and actually foods in general is that certain products just change spontaneously without without any uh, notification of the cus- customer. Uh, for example, some mm-hmm. diet drinks they were aspartame and now they're sucralose. Aspartame doesn't give you bloating; it's a protein or an amino acid, two amino acids. Sucralose gives you bloating out of your mind, and so. You know you have to be wary of what food items so there's sort of like black and white you don't do this <clears throat> you don't take any of those non-absorbed carbohydrates as as sweeteners um, and 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 then there's sort of gray zones which are um, you know maybe certain vegetables are more are more bloating than others like uh, beans are off the table they're just off the table <laughs> right beans. yeah because so, uh, if you want to be you know bloated than eat beans <laughs> yeah do you work yeah. a lot
1: with clinical nutritionists as part of your clinic infrastructure yeah i
2: think you know first of all i work with nutritionists quite often the, the dietitians are, are are part of our team in in a sense and it obviously anybody pregnant things are more delicate more uh, you know require more a tender footing and so absolutely we'd want to include dietitians if we can
0: yeah yeah and then what about i guess uh prebiotics probiotics do you how do you sort of uh, I guess recommend those to your uh, to these patients
2: well uh, we're learning a lot about the microbiome even in our own research we're starting to see that lactobacillus may be a culprit in disrupting the microbiome in a negative way Uh, probiotics eat and they make gas so uh, one of the side effects of probiotics is bloating and distension, and that was shown in a randomized control trial, very large multi-country randomized control trial called the PLACIDE trial. So again, probiotics, more bloating, possibly. Uh, mm-hmm. I do have patients who do better on probiotics, but it's rare. Um, and so I don't think you want to start something like that in pregnancy. It's not going to hurt the pregnancy, maybe, but it might cause more bloating and distension
0: i see okay um so i guess now we can move to sort of i guess specific pharmacologic therapy um i think there was it seemed like maybe in these in patient of ibs pregnant it it seems like ibs with constipation it seems to be a little more prevalent so we can start there um specifically i guess a lot of times we will go to osmotic laxatives um as like a a quick go-to in our in Typically, with IBS patients, is it change a little bit when they're pregnant, or how do you how do you think about this class of medications?
2: Yeah, I, I think you know most of the approved pharmacological agents are not approved in pregnancy um, for for the constipation side specifically. Even Miralax isn't uh, necessarily safe in pregnancy. So, um, what we generally use is more the magnesium approaches because magnesium is used to stop pregnancy to do it's used liberally in pregnant women and then most ob find that that's the most successful so if you can stick with magnesium that's probably your best bet uh obviously there are patients where things are more severe and you have to get more creative but uh that's my go-to
0: Okay, the Okay, that's good. Um, now there's one there's one prokinetic
2: that we do get away with using in pregnancy because it's considered safe. And again, all of this not FDA approved for pregnancy. Uh, what I'm what I'm saying it's more um, based on the safety profile and you know uh, consensus among ob and other others. Like low dose erythromycin. Erythromycin as an antibiotic itself is safe in pregnancy. Low dose erythromycin is a prokinetic. Uh, that you could potentially use in the extreme situations in pregnancy, but again, if you can avoid it, avoid it.
1: And is that sort of a, a short term medication with the tachyphylaxis that can come along with that, or how do you how do you manage patients with? Yeah, the yeah. Need well, for
2: that? tachyphylaxis is a problem with with low dose erythromycin as a prokinetic. If you give it more than BID, if you give it once a day, which is how we give it. You don't get tachyphylaxis very often because it, there's a washout period during the day. Um, it's only if you're constantly bathing the receptors with a tia. Like for example, in gastroparesis, if you give erythromycin TID, tachyphylaxis will occur. Hmm. But if you give it QD, you won't get tachyphylaxis uh, more than likely. Hmm.
0: That's awesome. Um, it's, so then I guess, should I, is it is it safe to say when it comes to secretagogues? you know, Tanapinor, Tegacerad, that all all these sort of medications that you guys sort of, though they're, you know, good for global IBS symptoms, that you guys sort of steer clear of them when the patient's pregnant or? Well,
2: like if you look at Lubiprostone, for example, there was one club foot that occurred in the trial. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that could have happened spontaneously. It happened to be in the drug group. Uh, But, you know, these are things that, you know, put your antenna up, like, well, we need to be careful uh, you know, um is, you can't use it in children under 12 because, or children under, or people under 16, because they're in animal studies, infants, and in, 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 uh, were there's a risk of death.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
2: now they don't know that that's true in humans, but uh, the FTE will see on the commercials, please do not use this under the age of 16. Well, the fetus is under the age of one, under the age of zero. So um, I think linaclutide and those, uh, and antri- uh, placanatide are out. They can't be used in that in that in pregnant women.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair, fair enough. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, some of the therapeutic agents for IBSD. Um, I think one of the mainstays for, I guess, a lot of practices is probably loperamide, Um, it it does not seem like that is an option uh, for for pregnant patients. Yeah,
2: I mean, loperamide, lomotil, which is more of an opiate, again, these things are are not wise during pregnancy. Rifaximin is a derivative, I'm sure we would have gotten to that, it's a derivative of rifamycin, and rifamycin is teratogenic. So, absolutely, no, Rifaximin doesn't get absorbed, the few women who've been pregnant with Rifaximin, that's not been an effect because it's not absorbed, but to me that doesn't matter. It, you know, if what little gets absorbed is not good, so Rifaximin is, is a not good one for pregnancy also.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then even, um, I was even looking like the bile acid sequestrants because they you know, disrupt your ability to absorb nutrients and whatnot, for, yeah, those are also up. not great.
2: Right. Well, bile is important for absorption of fat-soluble vitamins and other things. So um, the sequestrants can have an effect on, on fat-soluble vitamin absorption and, and the nutrition of the, of the, the woman. So uh, we don't recommend those. I know it's it, if you look at the list in the paper, <laughs> well, you know, it's what's interesting. Um, I'm just going back to the paper in general. You know, there's not been a review of pregnancy and IBS to our knowledge. Mm ever uh considering how common a disease is and more common in women mostly yeah. young women and there's never been and we looked at that and we said that's, wow. just, that's just crazy well first of all it's crazy that there's never been a review mm-hmm. and it's crazy that no company has looked at drugs in the treatment of ibs and so one of the the main points of the paper is come on guys we have nothing we literally have very magnesium, and that's all we get. It's a call to action. You know, we yeah. don't have a lot to work with here. And, and you know, for nine months, these patients can be miserable and could use a little bit of studies and research and some papers to help guide us a bit more. There's some data, but what I'm saying is we need a little more help, and these, these women need help, and it's an, it's an unmet need to understand IBS and pregnancy and how to manage it. And uh, that was one of the reasons we did. We knew we weren't going to come up with a lot of good answers. But not having answers is the answer, meaning let's pay attention to this area and let's do some more work here.
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Um, I guess should we round out these with the, I guess, non-dietary and non-pharmacologic options? You guys do mention a little bit about acupuncture and cognitive behavioral therapy. Is that something that you go to in your practice, or has that been effective?
2: Yeah, I mean, acupuncture is very effective for certain GI disorders. Nausea of pregnancy, acupuncture, and acupressure have been uh, very effective. There's also natural uh, products that could be thought of. For example, peppermint can sometimes be helpful in uh, in IBS, ginger, for example. Uh, But then even in the supplement area, it, you gotta be cautious as to what you're getting and the quality of it. Uh, you know, peppermint, for example, you, sometimes when they purify peppermint, they also purify the uh, pesticides that are in the in mm. the harvest of peppermint. So and when you talk about pregnancy, you got you just gotta be careful of what you're getting. Um, so um, it's it's a little complicated, but you know, ginger works, acupuncture works, acupuncture works. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, has not been thoroughly tested in pregnancy, but I can't see where it would cause any trouble for the fetus yeah. and it might be valuable.
1: I wanted to ask you about the, the peppermint, peppermint oil. Um, cause I had been surprised, um, at the quality of the data for it, for some of the symptoms, how do you, how do you incorporate that into your practice? If you, if you go to that, um, what do you recommend that they take? How do they get it? or Or do you go to that often?
2: So, uh, this is a good teaching point for, for fellows and for other, other folks is that, you know, when you do a clinical trial and you do it in 20 people and it works, now you got to do it on 100 people. and If you do it in 100 people, it should work even better because the p-value should be better because your power is better. And then if you go to 1,000 patients, the p-value should be even stronger because now you've got 1,000 patients. And the problem with peppermint, is the opposite is happening. The bigger the trial, the less statistically significant. Mm. In fact, the latest trial was not significant. So it's it's a good example of, it's really exciting to publish small trials as a nidus for further discovery. <laughs> but if it gets worse as you get bigger, it means it may not be working very well. You're off the track. And so yeah. it's not, Peppermint is not earth shattering and I don't really use it as, I use it as last resort stuff if nothing's working <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just want to try some safe things. But yeah, Peppermint, you know, it's not going to be a game changer for an IBS patient, in my opinion, and in, in, in my practice.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, do you, do you have any, I guess, axioms of of when you treat these pregnant patients? Like, are you sort of more aggressive later in pregnancy, or do you have like you know upfront discussions about you know breastfeeding and stuff, or just just some tips, for, I guess, for clinicians who are.
2: Yeah, it's sort of important to go to the the other end of the pregnancy because the other end of the pregnancy in, in later weeks is that the, um, you know, constipation starts to set in. But this is not just physiologic, it's more obstruction constipation because the, the uterus has gotten so large it does hinder flow through the gastrointestinal tract. <laughs> but, but, um you are you can have more liberal options later in pregnancy for example SIBO bacterial overgrowth is part of IBS and we try of course not to use any antibiotics or anything like that in early pregnancy but I do have some patients which, under the guidance and and you know kind of collaboration with their OBGYN they're absolutely miserable with bloating and then we selectively choose an antibiotic like erythromycin which is not our typical choice for SIBO, but it, in the setting of pregnancy, a, a regular course of erythromycin might just do the trick, because they're they're miserable. So we do you know consider other options in later pregnancy. In terms of breastfeeding or postpartum, um, of course we don't discourage breastfeeding. You know even if there's severe IBS, we want to try and make things uh, you know optimize the nutrition of the fetus or the baby now. But um, as soon as preg- as soon as the breastfeeding is stopped, we start embarking on therapies again, uh, and a lot of women, you know, if they're severe, may limit breastfeeding to a shorter time on their own, not under my, you know, under my. Uh, you know, I'm not telling them to stop, um, you know, unless it's super severe IBS and they just they can't manage anymore. But, uh, yeah, and then we can start on therapies, and all the therapies are on the table again.
0: Yeah, excellent. Um, well, I guess we're kind of wrapping up here, so I guess I'm just going to say, were there any, I guess, aspects that didn't make it into the review that you guys sort of fought for, you wanted to discuss more? Well, uh, I
2: think, you know, in the history of IBS, IBS was, um, it's, you just think of the terminology irritable, so you're irritable, I'm calling you a diagnosis of irritable bowel and a syndrome, which means you're not a real disease. So you're a dismissive, dismissive, dismissive person because you're irritable, you're a bowel, and you're a syndrome. And, and so IBS is a, is disrespected even by its terminology, uh, but also women in IBS have been disrespected over the years. And, and you know, I saw a quote there's a quote from a doctor who was training fellows to for their board exams and he stated in 2018 only three years ago that IBS is a disease of hysterical women which is ridiculous right Right. it's a ridiculous comment by somebody who's teaching fellows yeah and of course female female all the fellows uh, were offended by this comment for many reasons but the, the point is that it is a more predominantly female disease but it's an important disease and it is a disease. It's not a syndrome. And so we have to be respectful. And again, continuing on this theme, having a paper on pregnancy starts the conversation and hopefully the conversation will continue.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, I guess as we wrap, do you, do you know of any, because um, it seems like maybe it, it's easier, I guess, for people who are performing studies to just sort of exclude, you know, Pregnant individuals, just for the sake of ease, um, are there like more? Are there current trials that are underway that are looking at, you know, safety of particular pharmacologic therapies in in pregnant patients, or has, or is it still sort of still in like the, the contemplative phase?
2: Yeah, I think I think like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Piano Study uh, studies, I should say, which are for IBD in pregnancy. Uh, Dr. Uma Mahadevan from uh, San Francisco has been spearheading those trials, you know, just like with her It starts with a paper like this Then it moves towards a database of women who are pregnant what they've done what they've done successfully or not and then it moves to Discussing specific drugs through a collaborative network of doctors who've given this given that and then studying the safety and then then it progresses to trials and what you can get away with so again this this paper hopefully starts the conversation then continued papers start to emerge and then we start to think about could we do a trial could we evaluate these drugs i don't think anybody's going to do a randomized controlled trial in pregnant women for any drug i think (laughs) that would be too high risk for any pharmaceutical company to to endorse but at least to describe the experiences of clinicians and chart reviews uh, is a very, very valuable thing and, and helpful to these women who are pregnant.
1: Yeah. An important well, challenge for our GI community. That's absolutely right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think with that, uh, I don't know, with that aspirational tone, I feel like that's a, that's a really good place to uh, close things out. Um, so I just want to say, Dr. Mark Pimentel, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. No, it's been, it's been great. You guys are terrific. And, uh, good luck with this podcast,
2: uh, or program and you're doing some good stuff. Keep doing it.
0: Thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you so much. So that concludes another episode of the emeroid digest podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to reach out to us, please do so on Twitter and Instagram, you can find our handle at Emery Gastro Hep, or you could reach out to me personally on Twitter at Typically Silent as my handle. And, oh yeah, we have
3: that beautiful disclaimer you're all waiting for. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast does not intend to be, nor should it be, understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as a replacement for the services of a licensed trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trading, trademark manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation.
0: Basically, this podcast is solely educational and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.